Welcome back to the oh no, welcome back to the Past Talks podcast podcast about all the goings on in the world of school psychology education and our random thoughts and notions. As always, I am your host, Chris Ravance. I have a full cast today. You can't see it's just three more people, but to me, that's four quadrants, so it works for me. Joining me, I got Kia Sala. What's going on? Nothing much, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing all right after that stumble. But when you stumble, you just continue to keep going. And if you talk a lot more, people forget about the stumble. Yeah. So that's what I'm say, like, like, you know, like, you know, through the magic of radio editing, like we could fix, you could just do it again and we could fix no. it. Okay. No, no. <laughs> Imperfections are what make this real to our people. Otherwise, we sound like robots. Speaking of robots, how you doing, Brooke, Ro- <laughs> Brooke Roberts? I have no idea what that means. I don't know. It's a <laughs> somebody, some, 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 uh, somebody that has no emotion or uh, mechanical in my movements. Well, when I looked it up earlier, it said the number one thing they do is light golf courses on fire. So, oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> so honestly, and I've given this a lot of thought. If anyone is a robot here, I think it's our <laughs> guest today, and I've talked to her about this because. Given all the stuff that she does, I'm not positive she sleeps. And the only <laughs> rationale is that she's a robot. So what we're going to do is before we get started, we're going to have our guest. We're going to put up one of those pictures and we're going to make her click all the squares of a motorcycle before we continue <laughs> to make sure she's not a robot. We're going to double check it. How do you how when you have to click all of the pictures of a of a motorcycle, how detailed do you go? Like if it's in a I, box and the handle of the motorcycle is in the I box. Click that. You, I click it. I don't. Oh, want, I, I don't want whoever's watching this to like or looking at that website to be like, all right, first Ponce is a freaking robot AI yeah. down there. So I, to- yeah, on the I'll do the easy ones and then the questionable ones I'll stare out. But if there's like a tiny like fraction of like a handlebar or like a wheel in the square, I'm gonna Perfect. agonize over it for about like thirty or forty five seconds. And then I figured that's okay because no matter what I decide, they'll be like, well, this guy's a human. Like no robot's going to sit there and, mm. ag- you know, have this yeah. internal strife over whether or not to click panel 14. Like, you know, it's, it's, are you, are you, are you saying the overseers are taking latency data? On this? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, well, this guy's just an indecisive fool. He's not a robot. So we're good. We'll let him in. <laughs> Clearly let this one in. All right, speaking of robots, <laughs> I'm good. I don't know if I should respond to that. I'm good. I don't know if I'm a robot, but I'm okay. Well, a robot wouldn't respond, I guess. <laughs> well, All right. I mean, it, you're either a robot or you are the Flash and you have the ability to like move so quickly to do things that you have more time than the rest of us. I don't know. I haven't figured out what it is, but given all the things you do, there's there's something going on. There's some kind of witchcraft. There might be some tricks of the trade, and maybe that's like a mini skills 2024 session or something. <laughs> Efficiency with Elise Hendricker. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, let's let's do an actual proper introduction for maybe some of our first time listeners. Elise, can you kind of give us just a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do and where you work? Yeah, so um, my name is Elise Hendricker. I am an associate professor at the University of Houston, Victoria. I'm the director of our specialist level school psych program there. Been there since 2013. Um, And then I am also serving as the chair of the Shortage and Workforce Committee on TASP. So that's pretty much what I do in all my spare time. Yeah. Uh, And you're also a mother. 
I am a mother. <laughs> yes. I ride my Peloton. I'm getting into all the fun facts that are for later, but yeah. <laughs> and, a, and a fantasy football manager. Yeah, is it what's your team name here for the snacks, See, but you're here for more than the snacks you you want to drink the tears of the children in, <laughs> in who are losers in fantasy football. That's true. <laughs> I am a little competitive. The snacks are what get me to the, the competition <laughs> and then and then the drive kicks in. <laughs> we wanted to bring you on here to specifically talk about some of the work you're doing with the shortage task force um, and try to at least put a positive spin on this, right? There is a shortage. We all know this is not new news. And if it is new news, my assumption is you're new to the career and sorry about it. You're going to have a job. Um, but, you know, you guys are doing some great stuff and you're gathering statistics and kind of bringing awareness to a lot of different things. Um, I don't actually know how to start though. Like, are there projects you're working on? Is there updates? Like what is something you give us the starting off for at least, and then we will just, we'll just riff from there. How about that? Yeah, no, that sounds <laughs> good. Um, so I started in this position at the beginning of 2022. So it's been about a year and a half now. So I guess one of the big things that we did, um, you mentioned data. I don't want to bore all the listeners with the data, but a lot of it, you know, you kind of have to think about shortages in terms of we know that there is obviously a shortage nationwide. There are different states that have different levels of shortage. And so you really have to think about why the shortage is happening. And in every state, that might look a little bit different. You know, you might have some states that have no training programs. So obviously, that is a big contributor to their shortage. Um, there are some states, unfortunately, where training programs are shutting down. So that could be impacting. So what I really tried to do with the shortage committee is use kind of this past year as almost a brainstorm session and a data gathering, digging type of time to try to figure out where we stand with shortages and what some of the root problems are. Um, so that has kind of been the jumping off point so that we can make, we're obviously database decision makers, you know, we want to make good decisions about the strategies that we're implementing and the things that we're doing. Um, because like you said, there's a shortage. So we want to be smart about what we're doing. So a lot of it has been kind of data mining and just trying to figure out exactly where we stand with our shortage and why some of those problems are occurring. And I would also say this isn't even necessarily an old position. You were the second person in this position and no, Brooke? Dr. Hendricker, you you were the inaugural chair of this committee, correct? I think so. I think that there had obviously been work on shortage before, but to my knowledge, I was the first time that there was actually a chair mm -hmm. and it was a, think, a position on the board. I think Dr. Barbary was like the shadow work Maybe that's shortage. what I'm thinking of, like, yeah. like, she did, she focused on that during her time in the presidency and past presidency to make you think that she was the shortage uh, chair. That's another robot, by the way, probably is, is Dr. Barbary also probably yes. a robot. Cause I'm not sure where yes. she gets all the stuff she does done. Yeah. <laughs> the inaugural, Elise, uh, you talked about, you know, the shortage being different in different States and like different issues that really kind of goes for us too, though, in Texas. Cause like the, the shortage is also can be some way like regional because what's going on in Houston, Austin, Dallas, Texas, versus what's going on in rural East or Western Texas, very 
different challenges when it comes to shortages, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that was something that we dug into a little bit over the summer to try to look at what's going on in every region, um, what ratios are, how many people are working in schools, how many school psychologists we actually have in every region. Um, and to Kia's point, you know, in Texas, it's so big. We have 42% of counties that do not have a school psychologist at all. And obviously that impacts our rural regions out in West Texas, a little bit more than some of our more urban regions. So absolutely, I think that that is part of this data process because whatever recommendations or ideas we come up with, those can be somewhat generalized, but we are going to have to tailor them differently because Dallas region might have very different needs than San Antonio versus the Valley versus Lubbock. So absolutely. So when you, how do you, do you just cold call district? Like, do you have a school psychologist? <laughs> like, how do you collect that data? Yeah, you're like forty-two percent. You're like, oh, guys, there's a shitload of counties in the state. Like, how do we get this? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's a lot of different data sources. So TEA has PEAMS data. So basically what that means is every district will code all of their employees. And so they're reporting to the state how many school psychologists they have working in school psych positions. Um, but then we also have BHEC, which is our licensing board. So they can obviously give us data about how many people have licenses. There is a public search if you're ever bored, uh, where you can just go on and look at how many school psychologists are in your county. Um, so that is unfortunately what I did in all my summer spare time. I went county by county and counted how many there were. Um, and how many had zero and put that all in a nice spreadsheet. I'm really making this shortage gig sound really interesting, right? I, I, I mean, a robot I would do. to have a predecessor <laughs> at some point. So I need to sell this position a little bit yeah. <laughs> more. Well, I think it was funny because like we started off the episode by saying like, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to bore people. We're going to talk about data. I'm like, I presume the majority of our audience is school psychologists who are at least somewhat interested in data. I hope so. And it is interesting. I mean, it is a lot of, like I mentioned, it is somewhat tedious, you know, I mean, to go through county by county and count. But I remember when I was doing that, it was just enlightening to see, you know, how many are in San Antonio versus our Western regions. And I remember I sent out all of that data to our task area reps um, and our area six rep who covers Lubbock, West Texas. She responded to me immediately and was like, I did not realize how big my area is and like how many counties it covers and how many counties actually don't have school psychologists. So kind of back to your point, Kia, sharing that data back with people that are actually representing those areas who know those areas really well, but to see some of that information in black and white for them really starts to kind of spur more conversations. And that's where I think some of the problem solving starts to kind of happen when you can see some of those things in black and white. How do contractors play a part in this? That's the million dollar question, Chris. So we don't really have data on that. And that's something that we've been trying to figure out. To my knowledge, that's a national problem. It's not just a Texas problem, because any state that's reporting ratios 
we don't really know what's going on with the contractors. So when we report ratios, at least from our data, that is what TEA has shared in terms of how many people are working in school psych positions. Okay. So okay. an example of that would be Chris, you're coded, right? Because you are a school psychologist working in your district, but Brooke is not likely coded because even though he is a school psychologist, he is functioning in a different role. And Got so it. that's where some of the nuances get in that we don't really know how many people are like Brooke and our school psychologists and still working in the schools, but they're just doing a different type of role versus how many people are actually doing contract work and also, you know, helping in school psych roles. So there are a lot of caveats to the data that we can't quite unfortunately figure out how to get around. And does that include like Kia at a region center too? Since that, that is... does not. Nope. Huh. So okay. sorry, Kia doesn't count. I don't count because I work at a university. So and I'm so, the only tool school psychologist on this podcast, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're kidding. the only you're the only one uh, helping with shortages right you're the, now. You're the only guys all missed the motorcycle box. You're the only, you're the, you're the, you're the only so. acting. You're the only acting school psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that brings up a good point though, because in terms of shortages, yes, we have these ratios and all these numbers, and we know how many people in the state have a school psych license versus how many work in schools. And there is a large segment of our population in Texas that have a license, but they mm -hmm. are not working in a full, full-time school position. And that could be like us, you know, there's 75% of us right now on this call that are still contributing to schools yeah. and contributing to the field, just not working in a position versus how many people of those are realtors or just said, Hey, I'm going to go be a barista at Starbucks. You know, like that's some of the information that we're trying to figure out how to really glean, because I do think that that puts a different perspective on it, knowing how many people are still contributing to the field in some way versus how many people have just said, peace out, this isn't, you know, the job for me. Well, and like our TASP membership chair also kind of has some similar situations from time to time, because we will have somebody who will write in and say they want to move to a retired membership status as opposed to their regular membership status, but yet they haven't retired their license. They've only retired from the position from working in the school system. And so they're still counted as a full-time license or as a full licensee, but they may not necessarily be contributing in the way of that a, that a licensee contributes um, because they've retired from from TRS or retired from um, from working in the schools full time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it'd be it would be really exciting if we could figure out a way to kind of get some more info in these buckets. And that's it's very complicated. Getting the data we have is complicated. But like if I think about like, you know, people who are actively working in a school psychologist capacity could conduct, you know, engaged in the practice of psychology in schools. And then who are the school psychs who are contracting and providing specific services in schools like contract. And then who are the school psychs who are contributing to education? Cause I, I can think, you know, like those who become coordinators or directors or 
other, you know, university roles and faculty, things like that, that do support education in the field. And then who are your realtors and yoga instructors who have just left the field completely? And so those would be, if we could figure out what's going on with the licensees in those four buckets, I think it'd be a good start or next step. Cause what, what's already going on is a good start. I don't want to like, yeah, that, like, you know, and well, that, and, and that'd I'm be the next, from, next level steps right there. Yeah. And what I'm hearing from you, Kia, is that we're not, a, there's, there is a shortage, but it's maybe not as much of a shortage as we think it is kind of, because well, there's not, still school psychs contributing to the field. Well, well, I mean, not that, I mean, because we still need school psychs out there engaged in the practice of psychology in schools, of providing counseling, providing assessment, supporting with intervention programs. And some of that can be done, you know, like I, in my role, I've, I've gotten the opportunity to consult on or schools and systems and things like that. So I feel like I, I get to do some of the things I was trained for, but like when it comes to direct student services and assessment, that is not a part of my role anymore. And so... Um, like I said, there are ways to contribute in that education supporting role in that contracting role versus like the non-contributing realtor. You know, I, you know, I guess houses have to get sold. I'm not going to, you know, trying to beat up realtors yeah. here, uh, <laughs> but then, it, as far as contributing to the field of education, it's, it's, that'd be kind of hard to put two and two together there. Yeah. At least how much, how much does uh, the shortage that we're experiencing parallel other um, careers and vocations in our state. It, I mean, I'm, I know you haven't done a deep dive in, but is this is this a human services issue? Is it a? Are we seeing the same thing with CPAs? Is it people that are working with people are just not necessarily working in those careers? Yeah, that's a good question, Brooke. I mean, I don't know specifically because, like you said, I haven't taken a deep dive on lots of other careers. I mean, I think based on the data that I have and the research that I've done, I mean, we're seeing that it's a general trend in education, right? I mean, especially after COVID and the pandemic, a lot of teachers are leaving the profession. Um, I did a study on just some other random things in all my spare time. Um, and it said that, you know, in since COVID, like um, over half of the teachers were considering leaving, right, the profession. Mm -hmm. And so I think it has a lot to do with education, the state of education. I know, though, at our state level, there's a lot of conversations about just our shortage of mental health professionals, professionals in general, you know, so even counselors, social workers, psychologists, um, that there is a need that people want those types of services and can't access them for various reasons. So, I can't answer that specifically about the CPA world, although my husband is a CPA. He he has a job. Um, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be a okay. shortage of CPAs. Let's go, let's like go grab him real education. quick. Yeah, go yeah grab let's him. go grab him. Yeah, we'll bring him on. Be like, this is now a CPA podcast. Like yeah. he uh he would die if I brought him in at any point. He is the exact opposite of me he does not like to talk, which is probably why we have a successful marriage. Cause you can't have two people talking all the time. <laughs> all right. So we collect this data, we look at it and it's interesting. It's, you know, it gives us an informative, but what are we, what are we doing next? Right. So with the workforce, are you guys putting, trying to put things in motion or is this kind of what we're working on right now is just a collection of the data so we can acknowledge the numbers, which I think is important too. Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say the biggest step has been looking at the numbers, but then like you said, we have to 
we have to do something with it, right? Um, as school psychologists, we can't just be problem admirers. You know, we have to yes. be problem solvers. Look at this data. All right. I know. <laughs> it looks good, right? But what hey, are we going to do? Texas qualifies. Next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you think about it, um, I personally like to think about shortages as a pipeline, right? So we have to have healthy school psych programs and enough programs to be pushing students out into the field, right? We have to have enough supervisors in the field to want to train our students. And then once we get students out in the field, we have to keep them there um, and make sure that they are happy and like being school psychologists. So to that point, I think what we're trying to do as a shortage committee is address all three of those pieces because they are all integral. I would argue that our data shows that we have some bigger issues with some of those pieces more than others, but I think that they're all really important. Um, so I'll kind of hit on all three of them really quickly, but from the university side, we're lucky in Texas that we have a lot of training programs compared to other states. We are obviously a really big state, um, but we have to make sure that our training programs are properly staffed and properly funded and that we have faculty to train students and that those programs are full. And so we've been doing a lot of work um, also with Sarah Meyer, who's our training chair. She's amazing. We've been doing a lot of joint work together to make sure that our programs are meeting needs. So for example, we sent out a survey to our programs and we found out that most of them are operating at an optimal capacity for people that don't know the training side, especially if you're a NASP approved program, there are only certain numbers of students to faculty that you can have in a program. And so we are really trying to work with our programs to understand what their needs are. Because again, going back to Kia's point, all of our training programs are a little bit different. Um, we have some programs that can't get enough students. Maybe they're in a rural area. Maybe there's not a not lot of knowledge about school psychology in their areas. So those programs might need help recruiting students and getting more students into their programs. We have other programs like mine that I lose sleep at night because we turn away so many qualified students simply because we don't have enough faculty. And so my role as a program director is to share that information with my administration and say, look, if you would let us hire another faculty member, then we could admit this many more students and this is how it would help our, our training and our state. And so from the training side, I think that that's really important and that's what we are working on. We're also developing resources um, to kind of help advocate for training. A lot of our state universities, for example, are funded by the state. And so we need to make inroads with our legislators and talk about the importance of funding universities so that we have proper pipelines to be able to train students. So that's on the university side. That was a lot. I'll pause if anybody has thoughts or questions. No, no, no. But I think, I mean, and this may be a barrier, but a lot of the, the programs are centralized around major cities. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I know in San Antonio, there's at least four in my city. That's a lot, I feel like, for one city. But when we go out to some of these more rural areas, they have to either move, which then takes them out of the area they may want to work in, 
or they just kind of have to adjust. And but I do know there's some certain programs, obviously, and you know, pre-disclose, I go to this one, but like the program at tech is a hybrid model. So you don't have to live there to go to it, which I think is very beneficial because it allows me in San Antonio to drive up there to, to attend classes and I don't have to live in Lubbock. That's not an anti-Lubbock thing, but the, the point being though, is that people don't have to leave their cities and move to a new area. And so they can then bring their profession back to where they live. But is that, is there research in that? Have you guys looked into where the programs are centralized and kind of how that may affect things too? Yeah, absolutely. And then like you mentioned, since most of our universities are centered in those urban areas, we have data that Stephanie Barbary started to say, okay, then where are most of our school psychologists, right? So it's probably no surprise that most of our school psychologists are also hubbed around those graduate training programs. So it might be a situation where they go to school there and then they train there and then they don't really want to leave there. So to Chris's point, you know, we do have to think about accessibility. I know that there's been conversations about other professions like speech language pathologists doing some work with like our ESCs and training people more in a regional capacity so that we can somewhat grow your own. That's kind of a common term that's being used in school psych now, this grow your own idea that we have people, especially in rural areas where they've lived there maybe for generations, you know, and they don't have any intention of leaving, but maybe they do want to be a school psychologist. So how do we make our training accessible and reach people in these communities where they could just stay and learn and grow into a school psychologist without having to come to an urban place, you know, and, and uproot their families because many people want that option. But again, if they mm -hmm. don't live close to a university, how do they access that? Yeah. And it's not to say that not, universities aren't doing things. I know you guys are doing great stuff at U of H, you know, with the recent grant stuff, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And our program is, a hybrid model. Um, and that's really kind of what got me into shortages because we do have a lot of students that are already working in schools. You know, they want to become a school psychologist. They wouldn't be able to go to school full time. They have families. They want to continue to work. Um, they can't come to class at nine o'clock in the morning, you know, so mm -hmm. we do have a pretty good success with that. And we have grown a lot of people, again, in those communities that are a little bit more rural, they come to us, they train, they go back to their area. And that might be the first school psychologist that that town has ever had. So I think it's a beneficial model. It's just about how do we continue to spread that and create accessibility um, with, with the resources that we have. Yeah. And I, so you bring up something that made me think of a question real quick. Um, so are, not to uh, siphon off the teacher shortage, but there are a lot of teachers and they come to me, not like, oh, Chris is a beacon, but teachers on my campus are like, how do I become a school psychologist? So I do think there's a lot of educators and people who are in education who would like to become school psychologists. But I think program, I think a program like yours is kind of that entryway and that gateway to like, hey, you're, you work full time. If you want to be a school psych, come join our program and we can make you a school psych because teachers are always looking for another way to advance 
in the field of ed. A lot of them are. I'm not saying every single one are. Some of them are going to be lifelong teachers because they're badasses and they should. But, you know, some people want to go on and do other things. And I think that's also an untapped resource, too. Again, I know I'm tapping into a, a barrel that's already like only halfway full. But, you know, if I didn't know about school psychology coming out of bachelor's, so I would have never came upon it unless I found it on a drop down menu. Right. But there are teachers and people who work in schools and education who are like, oh, yeah, like what Kia's doing. Kia came and did a training. He said it was a school psych. And I looked it up and now I want to do that. But I can't. I mean, I live here. I can't go out to this place to do it. So, like, how can I become that? So this is those other barriers that we got to try and knock down. Yeah. I mean, you get kind of what I'm saying. I think I just rambled on. No, absolutely. And I always argue because we've gotten that argument, too, because our program does have a lot of. We get teachers, we get diags, we get school counselors, speech language assistants, you know, every role in the schools. And a lot of people will kind of say to us, well, y'all are poaching, you know, like we need teachers too. We need diags too. Um, And and my argument is always, yes, I agree. I mean, those professions might have shortages as well, but I'm always for people learning something new and continuing their training. And some of those teachers, if they didn't turn to us and become a school psychologist, would they just quit? You know, I would much rather keep somebody in education using their skills in a different way um, and retraining them to gain some new knowledge than to mm. have them completely leave the education field, you know, completely. And, and you can enter into teaching with a bachelor's degree. Like a lot of my wife was a teacher before she was a BCBA. She wanted to be a teacher as a school psych, as a high schooler. Sorry. I don't know any high schoolers besides the one I think Kia talked about a couple of years ago that he convinced that a shortage presentation to that are like, I want to be a school psych. And even if you do, that's daunting because it's four four years of bachelor's and then three more years of school psych. They were an undergrad student, just to clarify. It was they were, already, <laughs> they were already an undergrad, not a high schooler. Yeah. But my, my point being is that a lot of teachers want to be teachers for a very long time. But it's we turn people on to school psychology, you know? Oh, and yeah. so we have it's just understanding that you know, like it's gonna be hard to convince a 17-year-old that, like, oh, you want to be a school psych? That's awesome. I will see you in four years and then three more years after that, right? That's hard and that's long and it's a big process. But if we have people who have been in education who are lifelong, like I want to work in the education field, I just want to do something different. That can be kind of a a resource to tap into. Yeah, absolutely. And at our university, we do a lot with the exposure project. And those are some of my favorite conversations to go to the education classes, because I think that we commonly go to psychology classes, which we do. Um, Mm -hmm. But I love going to the education classes because I start to see some of the wheels turning. And I tell them straight up, like, I I want y'all to be teachers. Like, we need fabulous teachers. But I want you also to know what a school psychologist is if you are a teacher, you know, because we're a resource for you. Like we want to help you. That's what we're here for. So even if you decide from this presentation, you don't want to be a school psychologist, at least you know what a school psychologist is and how they can support you on your campus. And then there are always those little glimmers of people that come up to me and say, Hey, 
can I start teaching when I graduate and also come be in your school psych program? And I'm like, absolutely, because those teachers have foundational skills that are great, that they can become great school psychologists, especially when it comes to consultation, you know, developing behavior plans, like knowing how a classroom works and being on the other side of that. And then also being a school psychologist, I think is an amazing skill set. When... So it, I think one of the problems is short is we, we keep feel like we're talking around these like circles that like can't, you know, where's the, how do we close the loop? Because like, you know, you say, we've said we need more educators in general. And so trying to get people there, you know, to come in, but that's a big ask. And then taking people from other education fields and that is a challenge. But then let's, let's talk about the faculty piece. And so one of the challenges you said, even if, even if we drummed up so much interest, if we got everyone's so excited. Like if the next season of Abbott Elementary had a school psychologist character who was awesome and everyone's like, oh my God, I want to be a school psychologist now. Uh, Just throwing that out there. Um, But if that happened and then like suddenly everyone wants to be there, we don't have the capacity in these programs. And so like, how, how does that part get addressed when it comes to supporting the growth of training programs? So we have people who have the capacity to continue to churn out more school psychologists. Yeah, that's a good question, Kia. So, I mean, I think a lot of it starts at the university level because unfortunately, you know, we are data-minded people, um, but we also work at universities where there are administrators that are not school psychologists, right? Or maybe not data-minded people either. And so some of it is education and understanding. So I think sometimes with universities, if you do happen to be at a university like mine, where you're turning a lot of people away, um, I've done a lot of talking to our administrators about money, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, selling things in a certain way and saying, hey, if you'll pay a school psych faculty this month, right, per year, but then in return, we can get an extra 12 students and they pay this much in tuition because they have to take this many credit hours. And then there's formula funding, which basically means the state is also giving us money for having enrollment, right? Sometimes having that kind of information and knowing how to talk to administrators is really helpful. Um, And for us, that's actually benefited us. We are adding, it's a visiting position this year that we hope will stay, but it's the first time that we've had a fourth person. And so now we can have more students, right? So I think a lot of that in working with the trainer side too, is giving people those resources, because I've really had to think about how I frame my role as the shortage chair, because I would love to solve the shortage, you know, single-handedly put that on my tombstone, Elise Hendricker solved the school psych shortage, right? If I could, but I I can't, unfortunately, all I can do is advocate and give people tools and resources to know how to share and how to have some of those conversations. So sharing some of that information for our faculty to be able to advocate for their programs to talk about why we need a fourth person and how that not only benefits the community, but it also benefits the university um, is something that we've had conversations about how to do that. And then to also oh. to his point, I've, I, I could talk about this for like hours, y'all. Um, okay. <laughs> one thing also that NASP has 
more recently done is they have put in their standards um, that in grad programs, you can have a specialist level faculty member. And not a lot of universities, I think, have gotten on board with that because universities are accredited in a certain way. And so we have some additional hoops that we have to jump through. Um, but we've been talking about that. I also serve on the NASP Graduate Education Committee. So we're having conversations with universities that are using that option and trying to get that resource out to universities because for maybe for some reason they can't hire a PhD person. Um, but again, if we have awesome school psychs in the schools and maybe they're a little burnt out or maybe they're a little tired and just want something new, I I would much rather them come to a university and train our students because they're excellent at what they do. You know, they know what it's like to be a school psych. What better trainer could you have in a program? And so we're trying to push that out at the graduate education level to talk about how this can feasibly be done to address some of our faculty shortages too. So on top of the faculty shortage, no, that's a dumb way to start that sentence. Let me restart. It, when was the last time a new school psych program opened up? Do we know that? In Texas? In Texas, yeah. Um, Completely new, I do not know, but UTSA just started their PhD program. So they right. already had a specialist level program and then tacked on PhD. That newest specialist level i do not know off the top of my head i mean it's the baylor dallas program is yeah. only a couple of years in so that's probably down there yeah. but again baylor already having had programs in place in waco just but in a new now in a new location but that's a specialist level program yeah, and this is somebody who just yeah. yeah who just doesn't work in obviously the academic world but I know there's probably a lot more things that go into it, but starting a specialist program in some of these areas, is that something that can be done? I know there's things that have to be done. I know it's a year, years on process, bro. You think, or you know? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I just, it's different for different um, bodies um, for a private university. It's a little bit easier because they don't have to go through the Texas higher ed coordinating board. For a University of Houston school, that might be a little bit more, um, a, a University of Houston system school, it may be a little bit more hoops to jump through because they may have to go all the way up through the, the, um, the, the regents, the Board of Regents of, uh, of the University of Houston, and then to the Texas Higher Ed Coordinating Board. So it takes some time. There are rules if uh, in Texas through the higher ed coordinating board, if you're making substantial substantial changes to your degree plan, or if you're adding a degree plan or a certificate plan of 15 or more hours, you've got to go through the higher ed coordinating board. Um, and so that can take a while. Um, and the way that, you know, you don't, as a program, you don't just one day decide, hey, I want to do this. You have to go, you have to go in through your college and then through your graduate school and then into your system. Um, and so it it just kind of takes some some jumps to go through. Okay. Yeah. So it's a process. 
It's a process. And so, I mean, I think that that's why the training side of it is obviously one big piece that obviously people think about because we need to keep that pipeline growing, right? But then the other side of it is we also need to keep the school psychs that we have. And so we need to make sure that we're retaining people. Um, That's been a big push of our shortage series this year that we kind of started, that just started as an idea. But again, just to give people resources. And so we've done some talks about, you know, how to manage caseloads, how to have a healthy work culture, um, how to kind of get your year started right with our very own, you know, Chris Ponce. But giving people ideas about where there are districts in our state that are doing good things and have good ideas. And I think that that's really important to build that community because as Chris alluded to at the beginning of the the discussion, sometimes talking about shortage can be kind of doom and gloom. And so there are some districts out there that are doing really well and their school psychs are happy and they're supporting them. And so we really need to be sharing those ideas as well so that we're retaining people um, simultaneously while we're trying to push people through the pipeline of training. And if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't done the shortage series webinars they are on the task youtube channel Um, so so go uh go check those out and listen to some of those moderated sessions that that elise and her crew have done yeah there was was a lot of good stuff there and yeah at least to your point i think that's really good to think about what are things that are going on in districts where things are going well that they are getting staffing needs met and getting kids served and things like that is, is absolutely important i just I was talking with one of the districts in our area recently, a very large district with a very large department and they're fully staffed for this year. And I was like, it like blew my mind when I heard that because they have a very big department. And so they've done a really good job um, of recruiting and retaining staff, which is super exciting. And it's like, well, what are things that can be taken from y'all as ideas and, and, and supporting there? At least, is there something other than joining in and helping with the amazing work of the shortage committee, which they can contact Dr. Elise Hendricker if you're interested in being a part of that work. But is there th- are there things that are on the ground in the trenches school psychs can do to help with addressing the shortage? Are there actionable steps that those individuals can take to do their part to try and get on their tombstone that I helped eliminate the school psych shortage? Yeah, good question. I think the biggest thing um, and one thing that we're going to push out this fall, so kind of be on the edge of your seats and watch, um, I think a lot of it starts with conversations and advocacy. And I think that that word sometimes advocacy gets scary for people because they don't know how to do that or what that looks like. But I think that, again, every district has different needs. And so having conversations with your administrators, um, with your special ed directors, even with your HR people, your school boards, whoever you feel comfortable having those conversations with. And we're going to develop as a shortage committee kind of a presentation about 
shortages and about ways that people can actively work on the shortage in their area. And it's going to be kind of like a, a take and go so people can use it. Because I think that if we're all speaking the same language and have some tools and resources to kind of have those conversations with people, um, I think that that is a really good start. I also think that we are just coming out of a legislative session. And so we won't be back in a real legislative session for two more years. But um, I want listeners to know that when NASP or TASP sends out those advocacy alerts, it's really easy to just like delete those or be like, I'm not, you know, advocating. I don't really know how to do that. But those things really do matter. Um, so at my university, and I think a total of uh, six or seven other universities here in Texas, we do have um, funds from the federal government to address shortages we have some really unique projects going on that we're going to highlight at the TASP convention in Frisco in a few months. Um, and so those things matter. Um, I got to meet with Senator John Cornyn about our grant and talk to him about what's going on in terms of school psych shortages. And he was shocked when I said how many school psychologists we have in our state. Um, and he actually went back to the Senate floor and cited some of the stats that I gave him. And so those things matter, you know, just taking two minutes to say, we're in a shortage, you know, advocacy alert, I'm going to fill in my name and send it off. Um, our senators do hear that and they hear what's going on and those funds need to continue for us to be able to, to continue to do good work. So click the button, send the advocacy thing. It only takes two minutes. It's super easy. And it's a, it's a little thing that you can do that makes a huge difference too, you know, and and I, we're getting kind of towards the end here, Elise. And so I just kind of, what types of projects are you guys working on going forward? Because you, my question was going to be, what can people do to help? You already answered that damn question. So like, what are- what Too are slow, things? Chris. Yeah, too slow. <laughs> got to it first. But like, what are, what are the next steps for you guys as a workforce committee? Yeah, that's a good question. So- Kind of a lot. I mean, we have a lot of things going on. So we're going to work on the training side. Like I mentioned, um, we have a white paper coming out just about kind of the status about training so that people, again, that's another resource that they can just share at universities to continue to work on funding and growing programs. Um, we're going to work on that presentation that people can deliver to their ESCs, their districts, our area reps at TASP. We're going to help with that. So that that's another resource for you. Um, we are also, I feel like this is like a teaser, like get ready, watch yes, for it. Do it. Um, but coming in the fall, we're going to do a pretty cool social media campaign to kind of help with comprehensive roles of school psychs. We hear from a lot of people that, you know, there is some job dissatisfaction in terms of being limited in our roles and people not seeing all the good skills that we can bring to districts. So we're going to do a little bit of a social media campaign around that to kind of help people share again back in their districts. We're continuing to think about the shortage series that's had a really positive um, impact this year. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback about that. So 
we're going to continue that and morph it probably a little bit for next year. So we're just trying to do our part, what we can, share resources, develop things that people um, you know, boots on the ground school psychs can use to talk to their individuals, their districts um, at ESCs to kind of keep the conversation going so that we can advocate even louder than we already are. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do we know when the next short series episode is coming up? Um, it's we have ceased for the year mostly oh, okay. because we have the convention coming and you know new. Oh, I thought you can say because I was the season finale and like you know exactly. after me we have to go for the next year. How how like, could we do any better, Chris? That's yeah, we could. I mean, how can you get better results? Than... <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> no, and honestly, the shortage series, like I said, it was great. It got great reception, but it was a total. I, we just went with it. I was like, I don't even know what this is going to be. Um, but it, it went great. But I think with new school year, we're getting ready for convention. We're going to pick it Makes back sense. up next year and um, make it bigger and better. Oh, I'm very excited. I'm very excited. I love it. I love everything that you guys are doing. I'm very excited to see your presentation and what you guys are going to talk about a task and all that type of shit stuff. But um, before we end the episode, this season, we've been having new questions um, you may have answered some of these, but I don't think you have because I wrote them and I don't think I've repeated anything from previous seasons. So if I have asked this already, just act like I haven't and just answer it again because it will make gotcha. me feel better and it will make us feel better as a crew. So, all right. What was your very first paycheck job? I worked at a local park district. I lived in a really small town. So we kind of had a parks and recreation center. Um, yes. And I was a tumbling teacher. I taught little kids how to <laughs> somersault and cartwheel. And it was amazing. And you're like, this is, this is it. I want to be a school psychologist. Absolutely. Right now, this is where I'm learning this. <laughs> Do you prefer, so I will tell, I'll be completely honest and upfront. I'm super outnumbered on this next question. So I hope you're on my side but stats show that you will not be. Do you prefer to binge watch or do you like doing weekly episodes? Oh, that's a tricky question. It kind of depends on the type of show. Fair, okay. So I watch a lot of reality TV okay. and I could binge that very easily, but shows that are more dramatic, that actually have a storyline beyond women fighting, <laughs> I would prefer to weekly watch. I'll take that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count that for myself. That's a half um, win. That's a half point. <laughs> um, what is a fun fact about yourself? Oh, fun fact. Um, I don't know how fun it is. I shared it with Kia separately when he was mentioning that I was a robot and how do I do all the things I do? He said, <laughs> I think that you don't sleep. Um, and I said, oh, actually, let me tell you, um, I think I should probably get a sleep study done because I am somewhat narcoleptic. Like I could sleep anywhere, anytime. When we log off of this, we're taping in the evening. I mean, like I can probably fall asleep in 15 seconds. Um, that's like my- That is a skill. That, yeah. I, it's really I, kind of, it's kind of more superpower. It's really what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's really helpful on yeah. planes. You traveling. know who else can, you know, who else can <laughs> shut down in about 15 seconds? Robots. I'm just, <laughs> just saying. Just, just got to turn them off. <laughs> also, more evidence, parents maybe. With, also parents with babies in the household. So I can do that too right now. That's just because we're tired all the time. Yeah. I don't blame you. Two of them now. 
I haven't, mine, mine's nine now and I'm still tired. So maybe that says more about me though than him. <laughs> it's just the residual, like it just carries forward. Like it, you never, you never really get caught up. See, see, I feel like we're tired because of lack of sleep and then also just doing things during the day with our kid. But you guys are tired because you have to do things for your kid. Does that make sense? Like you have to like go places, right? Does your kid involved in things? Yeah, I I tell myself I'm kind of an, a glorified unpaid Uber driver at this stage yeah. of life. You know, you just drive your kid around for activities, school, friends. Where to today? Exactly. Yeah. Nope. There was this hilarious thing. I'll have to send it to you guys on Instagram, but it is a parent, a dad talking about, he has three kids that go to an elementary, middle school and high school and just the daily routine of, so the morning I have to drop off my elementary kids. So I take him to school and then I drive back and then I get my middle school kid and I take him to school and then I drive back and then I get the high school kid and I take him to school and drive back. And then at the end of the day, I have to go back and get the elementary kid and come back and the middle school come back. He goes, I'm just you know, a one way, you know, Uber driver or an Amazon, he said an Amazon driver where the package hates you because even then all three of them also have after school activities at different times. So then you have to take that little one to their thing and then go back and pick it up. And I'm like, Oh God, that's exhausting. And that's my future. I hope my kids suck at everything. So they're like, I mean, we'll just stay home, I guess. Like stamp collecting. All right, guys, get your stamp books out and start putting more stamps in. Let's get going. So, um, all right. What band or musician or song are you listening to on repeat right now? Oh, um, and is it Taylor Swift? Yeah, I was gonna say, um, that's probably the safest answer. I listen to a lot (laughs) of different music, very eclectic. Yeah, very eclectic view. Yeah, I'll go with Taylor Swift. That's my usually during the day work background music. Beautiful. All right. Last one. What is a giant pet peeve of yours for any future students that are going to be in your classes? <laughs> or just My in- biggest pet peeve is when people drive with their turn signal on. I don't <laughs> understand it. Like if you're just driving down the road, but your turn signal's going, I'm like, how do you not see that on... Like, we all know you can hear it. <laughs> yeah, you can either hear it or see it or both. You and should. It's very puzzling. You, you can be the Uber driver for my daughter then, Elise, because like she's she is always putting it. She's like, that person changed lanes, but their turn signal is still on. Why are they doing that, Dad? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not in their head. Like, she and I would get along. It's very perturbed whenever someone like changes lanes and leaves their blinker on. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's a rule follower in me. I don't know. I'm just like, don't drive. And then it's just confusing because I'm like, are you driving? Are you turning? Do I need to slow down? I I don't know what to do with that information. My mine is when it's not a pet peeve, but it does annoy me is when somebody's coming onto a highway and I see them and we both acknowledge each other, but then we both slow down and then we both speed up because we're like, oh, oh, okay. And it's like the it's like the polite four-way stop where everybody's like, oh, no, you go. No, you go. And then everybody goes at once. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. You go again. Except for it's more dangerous on the highway because you're just playing this weird chicken game where you're trying to be nice to the other person. But I think we all have our things. How do we segue out of this? We just do it like this. This is the end of our episode. We want to thank Dr. Hendrick for joining us again on the Task Talks podcast. It's our second time on here or the third time. Is it second or third? Second time. I knew that. 
Um, it's just because I talked to you and you're so nice and friendly that I'm assuming I've just seen you multiple times. And for all of our listeners out there, thank you for listening. Um, if you want to get all the updated information on what's going on with the task board, make sure to check out our social media channels at TXASP. Go look at our website. Go look at our Facebook. We drop a bunch of information and knowledge on there about what we're doing and what's going on in our world. If you have any comments, corrective feedback, or just generally just want to talk to me, go ahead and email us at podcast at TXASP.org. Um, and if you want us to keep producing this content, keep doing it, go ahead and give us a like. Go ahead and subscribe. Give us five stars or one star. I don't really mind. Just give us some stars, please. We need stars. And thank you so much. And for next time, make sure make good choices. Bye.